back to Genesis as we continue on. Genesis chapter 32. If you guys need a Bible, we got some over here. And Genesis 32, we are traveling along with our brother, Jacob, our brother and father in the faith, whose life uh, always has interesting turns, right? And, um, you know, this is my first time studying his life in depth and uh, always learning something new from his life and his walk with God, and I'm very thankful for that, and I think we all should be as well. So today, we're going to be looking at just the last... uh, 10 verses, they're verse 22 through 32. And so if you're able, you can stand for the reading of God's holy word. We'll read it, and then we will dive in. Starting in verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, He sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man with him wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Penal, saying, It is because I saw the face or saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Penel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. The word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Well, as I'm Starting to study this text, I'm reminded yet again that this world is not our home. Amen? Amen. And that's kind of a Christian way of talking, but what we mean is that when we look around this world, we begin to see that there are things that are wrong. There are things that aren't quite right. Okay? And actually, a lot isn't right about this world. And this is why the Bible talks so much about you and I as Christians being pilgrims in this world. Now, a pilgrim is a traveler, right? This is not his true home. He's going from one place to the place that he is trying to get to or she is trying to get to. And the Bible compares us to being these travelers passing through on our way to the true promised land, right? This this world was never intended to be the true promised land as God designed it. Yes, we're going to talk about the promised land today and how Jacob is entering back into that promised land that God promised him and his family and his descendants after him. But it was always to be a pointer to the true promised land that was yet to come for all of God's people, where it would be even better than the Garden of Eden, where all sin and hurt and tears 
and everything that's bad about this world would be taken away, where God would dwell with his people for all eternity. Something that you and I as Christians look forward to. Something that we yearn for on a daily basis. Somewhere where we will see God face to face. And yet we know that for now we are still on a journey. And we're not there yet. Just like brother Jacob. And along the journey we are being readied for that true homeland. See, Jacob was also being readied or prepared on his journey towards the uh, promised land. See, God was retrofitting him and getting rid of all of his self-reliance and all of his pride, all of his me-centered living, just like God does for you and for me as we are headed to the promised land. And this process we know won't be complete on this side of glory. We know that it will only be complete when we reach heaven, right? Then we will be without sin. But for now, God takes us on this path that always maybe doesn't seem to make sense. We don't always know why God is allowing certain things to happen in our lives. We always ask questions. God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen at this time? Haven't I already had enough already? And yet God in his wisdom, mysterious as it may be, is doing these things for our good, preparing us for something That is so much greater to come. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, It seems to us all unnecessary, but that's because we have not yet the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. You and I have no idea, maybe some idea, but barely an idea of what God is making us in to be and what it will be like when we're with him for all of eternity in heaven. In these past few weeks, we've seen how Jacob and his time with Laban had come to an end, and it was time to face the music. He had to go back to his brother, who, when he left, wanted to kill him. Yes, it's been 20 years, and a lot has happened in Jacob's life. He has matured a lot. He has grown in his walk with the Lord. But it's time to go back home and to reconcile with his brother. And yet, this is a very scary prospect. And the text before ours says that when, when the servants went ahead and came back to report that Jacob had four, or sorry, um, uh, Esau had 400 men with him. And Jacob was scared out of his mind. And yet so Jacob now sends his family and all he has ahead of him across the river. And the text says that Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone for the night. We don't know why Jacob sent his family and all of his possessions ahead of him. We can only guess. But the stage now is set for this mysterious encounter with a man. Verse 24, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, to be honest, when I first read this text, and I've read it before, but when you first come to it, you're like, this comes out of nowhere. Who is this man that comes to wrestle Jacob in the middle of the night? Could it be Esau? I mean, Esau was ahead of him and knew he was going to meet Esau. He was afraid of meeting Esau, so it couldn't have been Esau. But this man wrestled him throughout the entire night. You've got to ask the question, was there an enemy more frightening than Esau that he had to confront first? 
And yet, even with all these questions, it wasn't like Jacob could just stop in the middle of a fight and ask, who are you? Right? Just like you and I, if we were jumped, you know, on our way walking, on our way walking home, we wouldn't stop and ask the question, who is this person? We would try to get the heck out of that situation, and then we might ask that question. Right? Same thing here with Jacob. He's in the fight of his life, a wrestling match with a mysterious, unknown enemy the entire night. One of the things that's surprising about this story is what is left out. It's kind of cryptic, kind of mysterious. And as you read the story, uh, it's not very specific in some ways. The pronouns are all kind of mixed up, so you don't really know who's uh, talking about who at this point. And that's really the intention here, I think, of Moses. There is supposed to be a mystery about this story. For example, we're given just two verses about this all-night wrestling match. There's no long, drawn-out drama like your, you know, your WWE shows on TV about the, you know, it was never my thing. I, I didn't like wrestling as a kid, but I had friends that loved wrestling, and it's so filled with drama, right? And this person's trash talking to this person, this person's, you know, talking trash back to them, and then like 20 minutes later, they actually get to the fight, you know? None of that, right? We don't have any of those details here. We just have, they fought all night, and then it moves on. But the detail Moses does give is definitely surprising. Look at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. See, again, the interesting thing is that Jacob seems to have the upper hand in this fight. And for those of us who know who this person is that he's wrestling, it it makes even more questions come to our mind. How is this even possible? But his, he's winning, he's prevailing, but then this man touches his hip, and the hip is put out of its socket. And yet he's still fighting, he's still holding on. He wants something from this man that he's fighting. Does he really want to win this bat? Is he not concerned with his own safety? Or is Jacob beginning to realize that this was no ordinary man? See, in this short story, we begin to see that Jacob was picking up on some clues or some pointers about who this person was. The next verse, 26, it says, Then then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let go until you bless me. See, throughout this fight, Jacob realizes that he was fighting someone more than a mere man. And this was no ordinary man, this was God. And Moses gives us clues throughout the entire story that this was God. He slowly reveals it, keeping the tension like a good storyteller. But if we fast forward to verse 30, Jacob says, I'm going to call this place Penel because why? I have seen God face to face, and yet my life had been delivered. So the shocking thing about this text is that Jacob was wrestling with God as he appeared as a man. Some say it's the pre-incarnate Christ. God was the attacker. God was the fighter. That's why the the title of our sermon today is When God Picks a Fight with His People. Because God picked a fight with Jacob. He had something on his mind. He wanted something to be done. He was the initiator of this fight. It's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? 
Put aside all the questions that we might have. For example, like, how is it possible that a mere man fought God physically and then seemingly won? Or maybe you're asking, how is it that God appeared as a man before Jesus came on the earth? Or why was God concerned about wrestling as the daytime came? Why did he not want to be seen? He was fighting God Almighty. More importantly, God Almighty was fighting him. See, God was on a mission, a mission to change his man. I'll say that again. God was on a mission, and a mission to change his man, Jacob. Even before Jacob was born, God had a plan for Jacob's life. And through all of Jacob's conniving and deceiving and all of his trying to run as far away from God as possible, he still had a plan for this sinner's life. And God was going to carry out that plan. And Jacob had been through a lot up to this point in his life, but he, just like you and me, had been saved by the grace of God. He had experienced God's grace. And he had started a journey with God. He was a pilgrim going to his promised land an ultimate promised land in heaven with God. But there were kinks that had to be worked out of him. He was a work in progress, just like you and me are a work in progress. And God had to work certain things out of him before he was to enter the earthly promised land. And for some reason, God decided to do this through a wrestling match. All right, we don't know why. Again, maybe it's because guys respond to that physical interaction and being humbled by that, you know, physical action of being fought who knows but they were kinks that needed to be worked out but if you go back to verse 26 here it's all about or sorry it's about to be over and it's about to be dawn sun is rising and starting to come out and the fight has not ended and God says to Jacob let me go but Jacob won't do it because he wants something from God and again, what does he want from God? He wants a blessing. Let's think about this for a moment. Jacob has been in search for a blessing almost all his life. Think back to what Jacob did with the birthright. How he was the de deceiver, right? How he listened to his mom who was telling him to deceive his dad to get that birthright from his, or his, uh, his um, blessing from his father. He was in search of a blessing. He already had the promise from God that God would be with him, that God would give him a land and a people, but what else could he want? He still wanted something more. But something is seen here that we need, to, we need to understand. That when Jacob wanted a blessing, he was showing humility. He was showing dependence upon the Lord. There was a humility and a dependence that the younger Jacob would not have shown. I'm confident of that. As I've studied Jacob's life, we have seen that the younger Jacob probably wouldn't respond this way. And now he's showing humility and dependence. He wants something that he can't provide for himself. A blessing. He doesn't have it. He can't get it himself. He needs it from God. One person said this, here it says, it's a great mercy to be brought to the point where you're desperate enough to insist on what you need the most. Let me read that again. It's a great mercy to be brought to the point where you're desperate enough to insist on what you need the most. Brother Jacob was humble to the point of saying, 
God, I can't provide what I need the most. A blessing, an assurance from you that these things that you have said that you're going to do, you're actually going to do. That's what the blessing was all about. It was an assurance. It was a stamp of approval on God's promise. But there's also another really important thing here that happens at the end of the wrestling match. And this is kind of the central point of the text here. It's the name change. Did you guys catch that? He changed his name. Another indication that it wasn't an ordinary man. It was God himself. He says, no longer will your name be called Jacob, but now you will be called Israel. Why? Because you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Remember, names in the Bible carry meaning. Right? Sometimes we, you know, as a culture at large, we've kind of forgotten about names having meaning. I myself included. Right? I, I liked the names of my kids, and so I named them that. Right? Uh, it's not necessarily they have meaning, and we love their meaning, but it wasn't because there was particular meaning in our heart that we want to name our kids. But throughout the Bible, those names that God gives, that the parents give to their children, has meaning. Jacob means what? He cheats or he deceives. Very fitting for the way that he acted most of his life. But now he gives the name Israel, which means he strives with God or God strives. Now, upon hearing that, you may think that those are two different things. But really, both are at play. Because Jacob is striving for this blessing with God in a positive way. He is striving, saying, I am not going to let go until you bless me. He's showing a dependency, a humility. He's being rid of that self-reliance, that self-independence that he had all of his life. The name reflects that. But also, God is striving with his man. He's striving, he's fighting. He's the one that picked the fight with Jacob to make him into the man that he wants him to be. And so this name change indicates a major change in Jacob's life. Jacob, the self-sufficient, independent deceiver, now has become Israel, the striver, the humble, dependent person who waits on the Lord. He has been brought through the refiner's fire to a place where he is mature, not perfect, but mature, ready to go back into the promised land, ready to meet his brother who might kill him. He's ready to enter those battlefields because God has refined him in the refiner's fire. But think about what God had to do in order to get him to this place. He literally had to give him a limp that he probably had for the rest of his life. The end of the story is that he went limping off into the distance. And this limp would be a reminder of his dependence upon the Lord. That maybe he prevailed in one sense, but God prevailed as well. God made his man into what he wanted him to be. And so in a very real way, both God and Jacob prevailed. God was yet again the deliverer of his people, and he was the one radically committed to their growth in grace. And still, Jacob gets what he wants. He got the blessing from God. But he got something that he didn't expect, which was a change in name. And along these lines, it's actually really interesting, just as a sidebar point, that when you look at the Bible in the Old Testament, you start to see the God's people being used, the name of Israel and Jacob. All right, so 
Jacob the person is kind of a microcosm of what the people of God at large would be. And so when the people at large were disobeying, were being self-reliant, were being independent, not following God, doing whatever they want to, they would be called Jacob. But when they were following God, when they were submitting to him, when they were depending upon the Lord, they would be called Israel. See, that man's life shaped the course of the people of God's life. And whether they were following him or not, depending on they were called Israel or Jacob. Our story ends, though, with verses 30 and 31. And Jacob uh, called the name of the place Penel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet he has delivered my life. And then he went limping off into the promised land. So in this story, there's a few things for us to learn here. And there's so much more here that I wish we had time for us to go uh, deeper into. But the first thing here is that we have a warning from God. You and I have a warning from God here from Genesis 32. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the commentators, he describes the purpose of this story as this. He says its purpose is to warn the church that God will not allow independent, self-sufficient people to enter his kingdom, but only those who rely on God. Remember, what God had to do in brother Jacob's life before he entered that earthly promised land. And in the same way, God has business to do with you and I. He has things that he wants to pull out of us. That, that old remnants of the sinful man or sinful woman that is still in us, that still is yet to be pulled out. He wants to make us more and more like his son. He wants us to put on the clothes of righteousness and to take off those filthy rags of unrighteousness and put them away. He is working in us what is pleasing to him. He's softening those rough edges that you and I all have. And that work will continue on throughout all of our lives. And I'm sure that we all could give testimony how God has had to root these things out of us, especially our self-reliance and our independence and our trying to be good on our own, prideful people. You know, one of the things my, my wife often reminds me is that I'm a prideful man. And she's right. I'm a prideful man. It's something I've struggled with almost all my life, right? I am focused on me as a sinful man. I think that I can do things that I can't do. I think that I have a struggle with pride and self-sufficiency. I don't like depending on God. I'm sure that all of us can relate to that. I don't like being needy, let alone on other people, let alone on God. But when I became a Christian, the only way that I could come to Christ was that I would come to the end of my rope. And that I would say, I don't have what it takes. I need something from God. I need to come to the place where I repent of my sin and to say, I can't meet those requirements to get into heaven by myself. And so, Jesus, I need you. I need your perfect righteousness. But then I need your help to become the man that you want me to become. But it takes a place of being humble before that ever happens. And the same is true of all of us. That first of all, when we enter the kingdom of God, that we must be humbled. And then as we progress as travelers being sanctified, ready for our eternal resting place, we need God's help as well. We have been saved by the blood of Christ and we're now being purified as we wait to meet him face to face. 
That's that process that Brother Jacob was on and the process that you and Jacob, or sorry, that you and I are on. And there's one more thing that we want to point out as we prepare here for the Lord's Supper. And it's that how is it even possible that deceivers and cheaters and liars and all the like get to have a face-to-face relationship with God? Jacob here got to meet God face-to-face. We meet God face-to-face through Jesus, right? And as crazy as Jacob's wrestling match was with God, there was yet a greater wrestling match that Jesus had to do with God the Father. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus would wrestle for a blessing, not for himself, but for us, his people. Yet it would come at a very great cost. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So you see here that our blessing, that the blessing that we get from God comes through the curse of Jesus Christ. That Jesus willingly took on our self-reliance, our pride, our independence, and every other sin that you had, that I had, that Jacob had. He took that for us. He became the curse. So that now by faith we receive God's blessing. And as we do, we receive his discipline as children, not as orphans. As children, not as enemies. Now because of Jesus, we get God's grace that transforms us into the people that he wants us to be. We are his work in progress. He's committed to making this thing happen. He will see you through now all the way to the end of your pilgrim journey. But that's only true because he took the curse for you and for me. And so as we think about this text here with Brother Jacob, and we think about his journey, we need to think about our own journey. And ask the Lord, where are those rough edges that you're trying to smooth out? Where are those places that I'm acting in self-reliance, in pride, where I don't want to admit that I'm dependent upon anyone else or dependent upon God? Where are those places? And then ask God to work in you what's pleasing to Him. Say, God, would you help me to be a person that is dependent, that is needy, that's okay with showing my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. As we, we saw in 2 Corinthians at the beginning of the service, His grace is sufficient for you and for me. But we have to be at a place where we're ready to receive that. Humble to receive that. Only God can do that in your life and in mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you your word is perfect. And uh, Lord, any feeble attempt of a preacher to come up and preach your text is surpassed because your word does what it's supposed to do. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work in us what's pleasing to you. And Lord, that as we're on this pilgrim journey, God, that you would sanctify us, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for taking the curse that we might receive the blessing of God. And Lord, we pray for the grace to meditate on that as we participate here in the Lord's Supper. 
We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.